Welcome back, and thank all of you hardy folks for hanging in, not just for today, but two days of important panels and speakers. Uh, we've covered a great deal of ground over the last two days, uh, dealing with both housing costs and homelessness. And now we're up for our final speaker of the day and our final speaker of the conference. Uh, we're going to circle back a little bit to talk a little bit more about home costs and housing costs in California. And our last speaker is Lee O'Hanion, who is a professor of economics at UCLA and the director of UCLA's Edinger Family Program for Macroeconomic, uh, Macroeconomic Research. That's a mouthful. And he's also a fellow with the Hoover Institution. So he covers both North and Southern parts of California. He's also frequently testifies to the legislature and advises the governor and the legislature, whether they like it or not sometimes. And we're very happy to have him with us. So Lee, take it away. Michael, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you and, and share ideas with everyone about California's housing affordability crisis. I'm gonna go ahead and, uh, and share my screen so, um, so people can see my presentation. Okay. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. Um, in terms of the presentation I'll give you today, I'll talk a bit about the scope of the problem we face, how land use regulations and restrictions have contributed to high housing costs on unaffordability. In particular, I'll talk about zoning and California Environmental Quality Act. I'll, I'll shorten that to CEQA. Uh, I'll talk about policy changes that I think evidence shows can help and can help substantially. I'll discuss a bit about some political challenges involved in implementing those policies and what to do about that. And finally, I'll conclude regarding how much economic growth could expand if California is able to reduce land use restrictions. So let me begin by saying something I know that's near and dear to your hearts and others have talked about, I'll go through this a bit quickly, um, is that California housing is unreasonably expensive. And the reason I use the word unreasonably is that there's no legitimate economic reason California housing is as expensive as it is. And uh, as I go through the presentation, I'll talk about that. So as of second quarter, 2020. Um, so this is before COVID really had much of an impact on California home prices. The median California home was $606,000 compared to $270,000 median price second quarter 2020 in the rest of the country. And California is home to 10 of 11 of the most expensive metro areas in the country. Coastal California, as you know, is much, much worse. So compared to that $606,000 median home price in California, second quarter prices in San Francisco County, nearly 1.7 million, 1.4 million in Santa Clara County, home to Silicon Valley, $677,000 in LA County, 930,000 in Orange County and 733,000 in San Diego County. So these really are just striking. And any of you whom have shared these types of numbers with your family or friends who live in other parts of the country, these are just jaw-dropping numbers. We've become inured to statistics like these, but when they see numbers like this, they just they just can't believe it. And I'm focusing on coastal California because so much of our population lives within 20 to 30 miles of the coast. And the highest paying jobs are in coastal California. And one sad aspect of what has happened with housing costs is that many workers who want to work in San Francisco or Silicon Valley or Dan and Orange County but can't afford to live in those areas, commute long distances. California by far is the home of the most number of what are called super commuters, those who commute at least three hours per day. And obviously for environmental reasons and uh, carbon emission reasons, that, that's a negative as well. 
And it's not just housing prices, California rents are also expensive. The median asking rent right now in California is about 2,800 a month, about twice as high as the national average. Um, and California is home to 10 of the 12 most expensive rental markets in the country. Now, not surprisingly, housing costs are creating extreme financial distress among many and, and probably realistically speaking, most California households. Now, it is true that the median household income in California is higher than the national average. It's about $74,000 median household income in California compared to about $62,000 median household income in the rest of the country. So there's about an 18% income premium in California versus the rest of the country. But because of housing costs, just 36% of California households qualify for the median priced home within the state. And compare that to about 70% of national households who would qualify for that median priced home in the rest of the country, and that median price home is about $270,000. Now, interestingly, both of the calculations I showed you that led to those statistics presume a standard conforming mortgage with 20% equity. Now, that raises the question of requiring $132,000 down payment on that California home versus a $54,000 payment on the home in the rest of the country. So before we can even talk about qualifying for that home purchase, households, families need to think about, okay, where do I get that $132,000 of cash I need to put down to qualify for that conforming mortgage? This graph shows California home prices from 1975 to 2020. These are nominal dollars. They haven't been adjusted for inflation yet. I'll show that in a moment. And you can see just the inexorable increase in prices that have occurred in the state with the exception of the very large drop after the financial crisis hit around 2007 and home prices in California bottomed out somewhere around 12 or 13 but we've gone back up and as I mentioned before, we've now crossed the $600,000 mark. And actually according to the California um, Association of Realtors, the most recent data show a median home sale price of over $700,000 um, in California. I don't know how much of that is reflecting one-offs from COVID, so none of the graphs I'm showing you include that data point, but um, we'll see if that sticks or not. So this is nominal home prices rising from back in the day of about $40,000 in 1975 to over $600,000 today. And this is an index adjusted for inflation. The index is 11975 and it rises to about 350 by 2020 quarter two. So after adjusting for inflation, California home prices have increased by about a factor of five. So there's really just no getting around the fact that it's expensive to purchase a home here. And not surprisingly, the cost issues that we see in the home buying market spills over into the rental market. So what I've done here is I've reported statistics on the number of California renters who are either what's considered as rent burdened, those who pay in excess of 30% of household income for their monthly rent, or severely rent burdened, which are those households in California who are paying in excess of 50% of their household income in monthly rent. And 26% are rent burden, paying more than 30%. An additional 28% are severely rent burden, paying in excess of 50%. So over half of renters in the state face some type of financial distress, many of them facing really substantial financial distress from home costs. And if we think about those people, those households who are paying excess of 50% of their household income and rent, well, they may be one household member who becomes unemployed, 
or a relatively expensive car payment or a medical bill, just something, just one shock may send them um, into delinquency and potential foreclosure. The California home ownership rate is 54%. It's declining and it's highly skewed demographically. That 54% is primarily made up of people over the age of 40, many over the age of 50, who were lucky enough to buy homes in, on that graph when homes were much less expensive than they are today. And in comparison to the national average, 68% home ownership rate in the rest of the country, that home ownership rate is rising. In our state, it's 54% and falling. So everything we're seeing is just pointing to a very difficult situation for most Californians and one that is getting worse uh, every, every year. And economically, it's not surprising people are leaving our state. So in 2018, 160,000 Californians left. And that's up by a factor of four from 40,000 in 2014. And surveys show that the main reason people are leaving California <clears throat> is housing costs. They simply just can't afford to live here. It's just not in their budget. And the numbers tell us exactly why that's the case. Housing is over twice as expensive in the state and salaries are about 18% higher than in the rest of the country. So affordability is very, is very limited. Housing prices relative to income is just way out of what we would expect to see in any normal economy. And surveys show that over half of Californians under the age of 40 have seriously considered moving because of housing costs. And this is creating really an unwelcome and unnecessary generational divide between those people who are my age, and I'm very lucky to own a, to own a home, well, the bank owns most of it uh, in California, versus uh, when I think about my children, I have three children, and I think about their ability to purchase a home in California, and um, you look at the numbers and it's just incredibly difficult. Now, we've been this, we've been at this for a while. Uh, I've lived in California most of my life with the exception of graduate school and, and teaching at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Minnesota. I've been a Californian and I can remember growing up and hearing my parents and my parents' friends talking about housing costs. The Calif but it wasn't always this way. The California home price premium, which is just the percentage difference between California home prices and those in the rest of the country, averaged about 36% up to 1970. Okay, so in the 1960s, 50s, 40s, California homes were more expensive, but by about 36%. Now, <clears throat> that premium began to rise sharply after 1970. And by 1980, it was almost 80% more expensive than the rest of the country. And it's about 135% more expensive today. Now to put, that, to put that in perspective, if the California home price premium remained 36%, then today's median home in California would be priced about $367,000. Expensive, but much more doable for many more people than the 600 plus thousand dollar home prices that we're seeing now. And what's particularly striking about the fact that the California home price premium was just 36% up to 1970. Well, the 1950s and 1960s were the California boom. That was when everybody talked about moving to California, California dreaming, the golden state. As a kid growing up here, among my family and all the families that lived in our neighborhood, it seemed like anything was possible here in California. People came in droves. This is a period where population growth was enormous. Yet the home price premium didn't rise because supply kept pace, largely speaking, with demand. And that just hasn't happened since that time. 
And the economic reasons are really simple. Demand growth exceeds supply growth. It's, it's, it stops, it starts and stops right there. And what is built is built at a very high cost. So economic, the solution is a one-liner. Build more and be able to build at lower costs. Now, as an economist, it's easy for me to say this and say, hey, it's easy. But obviously, it's very difficult to implement because we've been at this now for five decades. For five decades, we've been dealing with California home prices that are exceptionally expensive. So from the standpoint of policy, I'm going to suggest that we need something new and something very, very different. And what I'm going to propose are policies that facilitate what I call market-based solutions. And why am I, and so I'm going to be advocating for rolling back regulations and restrictions on building that make building difficult or expensive. And why do I want to roll back regulations and restrictions? Because the problem is an imbalance between supply and demand. So within a market, supply and demand tend to get worked out if the market is allowed to work. Current policies that have been put in place, many of which are well-intentioned and well-meaning, have impeded market forces that otherwise could have solved this imbalance. And you know what economics tells us um, from what I'll say is thousands of years of data going back to ancient Roman times is that when a market is hit with regulations and restrictions, oftentimes well-intentioned, and regulation builds upon restriction, builds upon another regulation, many of which attempt to get around unintended consequences of previous regulations, the market never works well. It just never works well. And the solution is to roll back those regulations and restrictions. And I'll spend the rest of my time talking about that. How well are we doing in building? Well, not well. Here's a picture of total California building permits going back to 1954 and includes the 1960s. That was really the heyday of California expansion. And you can see where we are right now. And despite Governor Newsom's focus on really expanding housing and, and a Marshall Plan for California housing, we're, not, we're simply nowhere near where we need to be. You can see the absolute bottom that occurred around the time of the financial crisis, uh, around 2008, 2009, and has recovered somewhat. But you can see that it's nowhere near where we used to be. And this slide shows total housing permits. And this slide, now we talk a lot about multifamily, multifamily housing now. Uh, and you can see the same issue holds for multifamily housing permits, uh, perhaps even more so in terms of the percentage differences. We're looking at factor three or factor four difference between the 60s and 70s, even the 1980s compared to today. We're just not building enough. Um, so where do I come in on this? Well, just a new regulatory framework is needed and, and one that I hope people view openly and perhaps think about, you know, maybe we just really need to start, we can keep some things, but let's keep an open mind and really think about doing some things that are, that are just new. So any sensible regulatory framework will balance economic and population growth and the ability to create affordable housing with environmental and historic protection. Okay. And it's gotta be efficient. In this state, we waste a lot of resources in the review and approval process. And that waste is gonna be paid for. Who ends up paying for it? It's the homeowner, okay? In a competitive economy, costs, in a competitive economy, goods are produced at the lowest possible cost. And those costs get passed on to the consumer. And the consumer in this case is the renter or the person buying the home. So that's where the buck stops with, with homeowners and renters. And there's so much we can do to make it more efficient and make it more affordable. 
So I'll talk a bit about CEQA, zoning and ministerial review, reducing proposal review times, and also uncertainty. Developers look at CEQA and they say, I don't know if it's gonna be passed, if it'll be adopted. I don't know how long it's gonna take. Let me just give you an example that I think really highlights some issues that have emerged with CEQA, which is obviously a very well-intentioned law that was written 50 years ago now, but that really needs to be reformed. And the example I'll give you is um, Newhall Ranch. And I think now the development may have a new name. But in 1994, plans were submitted to build a 60,000 person planned community. Um, great idea. Creating new cities, new towns is something we really need to do in the state because it's proven to be so difficult to expand in leading cities such as San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles. The plans were submitted in 1994. Okay, well, one household out of four had a personal computer at that time. Nobody had ever heard of the, the internet outside of academics and people in government. It took 25 years to resolve all legal challenges associated with New Hall Ranch. Just last year, the last lawsuits were resolved. Um, CEQA related lawsuits came after approval. No one's moved into New Hall Ranch. The first homes might be available in 2021. And obviously this is just incredibly inefficient and costly and just shouldn't happen. And while this is an extreme example, it does give us an idea about what can happen with current policies. And if we look at median time to complete 10 or more units, a structure with 10 or more units, so multifamily residences, the median time to complete in California is six years. Okay, it doesn't need to be that way. There's, that's just needless delay that drives up costs. So let's talk about some reforms. Um, ban duplicative lawsuits. If a lawsuit's filed, it gets settled once and that's it. We should enable procedural reforms to prevent delays because there is evidence the CEQA is used to delay projects. We need to prevent lawsuits that enter on the grounds for the environment that but that might be hiding other reasons. So to help incentivize this, losing parties should pay court costs. If an existing approval is in place, then let's try to keep that and allow judges to narrowly focus remedies rather than tossing out the entire approval and starting over. I believe Jennifer Hernandez and her research found that only about 15% of litigants in the cases she looked at were actually had filed a history of environmental lawsuit issues. Most, 85% had never filed anything. So we need to disclose litigant identities and we should standardize remedies where possible. This will make it much easier within courts and it will also reduce uncertainty. Now, some lawmakers recognize these issues and are proposed new legislation. So I really liked SB 659 that was uh, written by Senator Borges from Fresno. Litigants pay court costs for bad faith or frivolous lawsuits or the use of CEQA to delay. He also authored SB 1378, which was disclosed litigant identities. I think both of those laws really were going at issues within CEQA that we, we know are problematic. Um, I'm sorry those haven't passed yet. I don't know enough about the detail of the legislature right now to know where they stand, but this is exactly what we need to do. Um, and as an economist, I would like to propose that we routinely use cost-benefit cost evaluations in considering environmental issues associated with development. CEQA's language focuses on feasible alternatives and feasible mitigation. But feasibility should also recognize the trade-offs we face and the efficiency or inefficiencies associated with what's feasible. Because the punchline is something that's feasible may be very, very costly and not in society's best interests. And in the year 2020, our policies need to reflect best practice economic principles. And that includes cost-benefit analysis, <clears throat> to be able to, to be able to allow us to make the most informed decisions. 
CIC was written in 1970 when there was much less emphasis on economic analysis and policymaking. Um, the Endangered Species Act was, I believe, signed into law that exact same year. There's no mention of cost-benefit analysis in that. It's all about what's feasible. But economics tells us that, that everything that is feasible may not be desirable from a social standpoint. Okay, here's an example. Carbon emissions. In resolving the, new, the Newhall Ranch lawsuits, they agreed to put in 10,000 solar, solar installations and install 25,000 electric vehicle chargers throughout the city to try to satisfy a net zero carbon emissions requirement. Well, and I can get this more during uh, Q&A, um, net zero emissions doesn't come close to passing any sensible cost benefit assessment. Yes, we can get to net zero carbon emissions, but from a societal viewpoint, it is simply not worth it. Again, feasibility doesn't mean it makes economic sense from the standpoint of society. Let me talk about, share some ideas with you about zoning and ministerial approvals. Okay, ministerial approvals are effective because it allows us to create housing while bypassing local zoning ordinances and CEQA. SB 35 is based on this principle. SB 35 could be even better by expanding the qualified pool of projects. For example, we, don't, we shouldn't just apply SB 35 to what we call, quote, affordable housing. I put that in quote marks because today there's literally no housing that's built in California that's affordable from the standpoint of someone below median household income, that's, there simply is nothing that's affordable. Okay, we call it affordable, but it's not affordable. We need to approve all types of housing. We need to build more of all types of housing. Number two, SB 35 has written into it a requirement to pay prevailing wages. Well, prevailing wages are what typically exists within a union collective bargaining agreement. In the year 2020, Prevailing wage agreements go back to the 1930s. In the year 2020, we don't need to be focusing off of collective bargaining agreements. There's a, there's a market out there for buying construction services and labor associated with the construction services. Those markets work pretty well. If we wanna hire qualified construction services and the labor associated with that, we have to pay the market price. There's no need to focus on collective bargaining agreements. And we should allow ministerial approval in all regions. It doesn't need to be just in regions that aren't meeting their housing construction quotas. So expand the qualified pool. Now, there's important political challenges associated with this. And I appreciate that and I'm sympathetic to these. So some Californians, they're understandably concerned about potentially large changes in their communities. Many people have located within a particular neighborhood that may have been zoned for single family homes under the expectations it would stay that way. Others may have invested the bulk of their savings into a home and they wish to protect their investment from legislative changes that may change the value of their properties. And just as a bit of a sidebar from an economic standpoint, it is not a wise thing to do to invest everything you have into your home and call that your investment. But in California, that's what people have, have to do. So I certainly understand concerns people have, and, and that really highlights the tension we see between the interests of homeowners and people dwelling in existing communities and the need to create new housing. And because of this reason, zoning reforms die every single year in the legislature. Okay, so we're hitting our head on the wall with this. But there's a potential solution, which is we ask, how do we get buy-in? Well, you know, turn NIMBY into YIMBY, okay? So create development that people in locations that may be effective that they want, rather than forcing development onto them that they might not want, okay? So this is not all that hard to do. Development that is desirable to those living in the community. 
the development simply has to include amenities that are sufficient so that people say, hey, I'd love to get this new development. This sounds great. How do we do that? Well, mixed use development is incredibly popular. It includes retail space, recreation, make it child friendly and family friendly, um, make sure it provides adequate infrastructure to deal with more people living in the area. Um, make it a win-win. Now, how do we do that? Well, this leads us to, I think, a challenging conversation, but one that we really can't pretend doesn't exist about how to support low-income housing. Uh, how to be able to create housing for people that don't make oodles of money every year and who can't afford that $600,000 median home or a $1.7 million median home should they be in San Francisco? Well, the economics is clear. Housing costs fall when supply expands. Build and let market forces reduce costs. Now this requires a conversation about where we locate developments for low-income families and for the homeless. And this is because markets allocate the highest valued land Okay, land in and around Beverly Hills or San Francisco or West Los Angeles or Santa Monica or the coastal areas of San Diego and Newport Beach, the market would allocate that land to the highest value projects. And what I'm going to argue is that locating housing for low-income households and for the homeless outside those most expensive areas may actually be much, much better for those people than trying to force it into a cubby hole in high value land locations. And this is gonna make it easier for buy-in for communities. So here's, in my opinion, how not to support low-income housing. And the example I'm gonna give you is Palo Alto's Buena Vista Trailer Park. The Buena Vista Trailer Park was built in the 1950s. It sits on four and a half acres in the middle of Palo Alto, it's the most expensive land in the country. It's 117 units. It is decrepit. I won't mince words. The city is choosing to preserve it at a cost of $70 million for those 117 units and preserve it for very low-income families. From an economics point of view, this just doesn't make sense. It's inefficient. Everyone, in my opinion, would be better off if land was allocated to its highest income use. Let Google or some new tech startup locate there create something remarkable, create economic opportunity, create income, create tax revenue for the state, and move the Buena Vista residents elsewhere, and they could be compensated for that move. It just makes no sense to keep a trailer park in the middle of Palo Alto. I understand the tensions politicians and planners face, but the economics is just hitting us in the face that a low, low income household and homeless uh, housing solutions have got to recognize the fact that the most valuable land should be primarily used for the most valuable locations in terms of economic activity. I know I'm running short on time, so let me go through the next few slides quickly. Uh, the coasts of California are incredibly expensive. Now, California is densely populated in just a small number of regions. There's no reason why we can't try to incentivize population to, to move to areas that are, that are less dense. I'm gonna give you an example. I'm gonna show you a heat map of population for New Jersey and for, Calif and for California. And just take a look. Here's New Jersey. The red means there's more than 5,000 individuals living in those locations per square mile. And the brightest green is just one to 10 people living per square mile. So you see New Jersey, and this is the most densely populated in the state. It's five times denser than California. And you can see there's a few hot spots, but there's a lot in the middle. There's a lot of yellow and light green in the middle, which is reasonably densely populated areas, but not overly so. Okay, so that's New Jersey. Keep that in the back of your mind. Here's California. California is lots of bright green. And some of that, yes, is national or state forests. But California is largely empty with the exception of these hotspots 
near Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area and right around Los Angeles, Orange County and San Diego. And anyone who's driven through California, you'll be struck just how empty much of it is. So there's no reason why we can't build more Newhall ranches. Um, let's make it easier to do that by rolling back regulations and restrictions. Um, Central Valley would be, I think in my view, a natural place to look to develop. Median housing costs in Fresno's under 300,000, similarly Madera, Merced, Stockton, Chico, where there's a Cal State University, median housing costs is about 360,000. Okay, so let's try to incentivize that. Um, how could we do that? Um, I'm sorry, let me just go back here for one second. Um, let's, let's give tax credits for businesses that, 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 that were, are willing to locate out there. And interestingly, um, a silver lining that comes with COVID shows that many workers may be able to work from home, which permits commuting from lower cost locations to headquarters that might be in expensive locations. And what that also means is that industrial and commercial buildings may be able to be repurposed from business activity to residential and mixed use activity. And we can give businesses tax credits for allowing workers to, to, uh, to work remotely. And we can also expand high-speed Wi-Fi throughout the state to facilitate that. Um, I'll just close by just noting what would happen if we rolled back regulations. Well, a paper of mine, um, if anyone wants to get that, just email me and I'll send it to you. It's called Tar The Tarnishing of the Golden State Land Use Regulations, Economic Slowdown. I and my co-authors, I won't go into detail how we did this, but we estimated that if we were able to quantify the importance of land use regulations on housing prices, and we estimated that if we could go back to 1980 zoning and regulation levels, US GDP would rise by $300 billion annually if we could just go back to 1980. And in new research, we now have as, as titled what 30 million commercial properties tell us about zoning regulations. We've estimated that zoning restrictions are most tight in San Francisco, New York City is second, and that zoning has doubled the costs of building San Francisco commercial activity in just the last 10 years. So let me close by saying, um, we've been really good environmental stewards in the state. And we, continue, we can continue to do that. But we need to recognize we also need to be stewards of our, of our scarce resources. We're wasting too many right now. And we need to be stewards for future generations, our kids and their kids, because they're not gonna be able to afford to live here. We need a policy framework that focuses more on markets, that value trade-offs, that improve efficiency, less on regulations, and fundamentally, whatever we do, we have to remove impediments because we have a supply-demand imbalance, and that only happens when a market is prevented from working as it should. So thank you very much. I'm sorry I went over. I wanted to squeeze in as much as I can, and I appreciate your patience. I'm happy to share ideas now during the Q&A. We appreciate that, Lee, and I'm sure you'll get some questions. I have some coming in already. Uh, I'm sure that was uh, that was provocative, and uh, I hope so, and that people will follow up on this. Once again, you can ask your questions on the Cato site. There's, if you're following it through our events page, you can simply use the box there. You can send in your questions the normal way on Facebook or on YouTube. And if you're on Twitter, you can send in your questions using the hashtag CatoCalifornia. Uh, let me start off with a question, a couple of questions about CEQA. Uh, one is, uh, why not ban it for infill uh, projects? That, that would seem to make the most sense uh, there, the, have the least environmental impact. Uh, why not simply make a state, there's been some, I think, on low income uh, infill, but why not simply ban it statewide on infill projects? Yeah, there's no reason why we can't do that. Um, it's fine to have some type of environmental review about, about buildings, but um, we can do that outside of CEQA. So yes, I actually would be very supportive of that. Um, second question, I guess, uh, some of you are talking about moving uh, people further out from the coast. 
one of the things that's been raised is the fact that people are now building in fire areas more and more often. We've had, you have those terrible wildfires now that people are suffering from. Part of that is because people are building in the, in the valleys uh, out there, areas that have always burned, but now they're burning with cities in them. And while we certainly can do things in terms of both forest management and, and uh, climate change areas that need to be fixed, uh, do we really want more people building in, in those areas? Sure. Uh, fire prevention and managing fires is obviously front and center, as we've seen just in the last uh, in the last month. And um, this is part of a broader conversation because the California budget no longer really has the money available to deal with this. Um, and confronting these issues means confronting the California budget. Um, interestingly, the share of the California budget that goes to um, health, um, much of that is Medicaid, Medi-Cal, uh, K through 12, the prison system, um, pensions, and interest on the debt and higher education, that is about 73% of the budget, just those five or six areas. So when you ask, how do we run the rest of the government? How do we run the state? How do we fund the DMV? How do we take care of force management? The money's simply not there. So I think the state needs an overall fiscal rethink, but yes, responsible planning uh, fundamentally requires confronting uh, putting communities that are not at obvious and immediate risk next to forest areas. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on, what, on what exactly would need to be done, but, but yes, recognizing the possibility of, 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 of wildfires needs to be front and center in community planning. Along the same lines uh, of questioning about to whether people can move further out, uh, yesterday, we talked about people who are sleeping in their cars in places like San Francisco and L.A. Uh, because they commute three or four hours to work uh, because the, that's where the jobs are is in the cities. If the jobs haven't moved out, can we really expect people to move further out? Yeah, so there's really two tensions there. Um, one is, you know, for, for commuters, you know, can they have it all? Can they have a good paying job? And can they live someplace that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg? And yeah, they're either commuting two, two hours each way or they're, or they're camping out. Um, I mean, Google pays, uh, Google hires 22-year-olds out of MIT or Caltech. Um, they find it more fiscally reasonable to buy an old van, van in the Google parking lot, <laughs> rather than pay $4,000 a month to share a home with five other people. Um, so we'll see how much work translates into telecommuting and remote work that we've seen that's sort of arisen as a necessity from COVID. Um, Steve Davis, who teaches at the University of Chicago, thinks that this could be as much as a third of the workforce. Um, so if that's true, that could be a game changer. Um, but yes, there is this enormous tension about the good jobs are here, not enough housing is here. Um, people do need to recognize that, I mean, millions of people would love to live in San Francisco. We can't fit them all in there. Millions of people would love to live in Santa Monica. We can't fit them all in there. And one issue that seems to be missing from a lot of conversations about this, and surprisingly so, is that um, California is going to continue to be expensive. No matter what we do, it will still be expensive. And if an area is too expensive for a family to live in, then that needs to be recognized. Um, that component of the conversation I don't see discussed nearly enough. Uh, sort, of, sort of similar to that, there's trade-offs involved. You talk about all the tensions. And I think one of the things that people don't discuss enough because they're not economists is always, there's always trade-offs involved in everything. But if you institute environmental regulations that drive up the cost of housing, and then those, that forces people to drive two and a half hours in their car back and forth to their job, aren't you in many ways making the environmental problem worse rather than better? Yes, yes, so this is what we wanna get away from. Um, uh, very sadly, um, I don't recall where I read this, but a scientist estimated that 
all of the carbon emission benefits that California had accumulated in the last 20 years have been completely offset by just the wildfires that occurred in the last two months. Um, so yes, this is where trade-offs and valuation has to be part of the conversation. Um, we've driven up costs like crazy in San Francisco and San Jose, and yet I think I read once that you know thirty or forty thousand people from Stockton every day are driving into those locations, creating carbon emissions, making the air less healthy to breathe. Um, we've tended. I mean, I'll just say that policy has become somewhat extremist. Uh, and this is why we have to have cost-benefit analysis. We have to have discussions where economics plays a much more important role. So yes, I, uh, I think I'm preaching to the choir on, on this particular question. Um, this, you know, these are some of the unintended consequences of what environmental review and what CEQA has wrought. Um, in, in terms of tensions and trade-offs as well, one of the things that's interfered or that makes it difficult for changes in zoning, but also necessity, is a lot of people bought into their houses when those communities were inexpensive, but they were also sort of did, they were de jure segregated. You had communities with white only covenants and so on in California. People were able to buy in there. Now, of course, the, those legal restrictions on segregation are gone. But the cost of houses has now risen in those communities to the point where people from outside the communities can't move in and you're creating sort of a de facto segregation. We had a lot of people talking about this yesterday, that redlining, uh, that if you look at the demographic maps from the 1930s or 50s uh, and where minorities lived and where they live today, it's not changed a whole lot. How do we deal with that? Yeah, so economics tells us that um, opportunity can occur where people want to be and businesses want to be. Um, so families want affordable housing, amenities, good schools, and businesses want to hire qualified people where the cost of business is, is low. Um, there's no reason why that can't occur in areas, uh, and I'm not speaking necessarily uh, about particular demographic groups, but you know, again, the solution is to build. Um, where is it easiest to build? You know, probably outside of San Francisco, probably outside of areas like Santa Monica. Um, the idea that we can take Santa Monica and expand this housing stock by 50% or 100% and keep those units affordable for families uh, that are African-American or Hispanic, uh, or Native American um, is just not going. It's just not realistic. Um, I don't mean this from the standpoint of prejudice, but it's just not economically realistic. So what I would love to do is to see development occur in areas where it's less expensive to build. And you know, if you go back to the old uh, movie um, Field of Dreams, uh, if you build it, they will come. Yes, if you go to location perhaps in the Central Valley, perhaps not that far. Think about creating new cities. There's no reason why we can't have success there that would suggest more economic opportunities for African-Americans, for Hispanics. Um, I think anyone who wants to think about expanding opportunities for those in low, income area, low, low incomes, white, African-American, Hispanic, has got to think a little bit outside the box and has got to stop, and, and we just can't keep thinking, let's put in 300 units here in Santa Monica, let's put in 500 units here over by Westwood, let's put in 200 units here in South San Francisco. That is really not gonna move the needle, but creating new communities where we can have state-of-the-art technology with infrastructure, with electronics, um, with environmental controls, um, uh, brand new schools, that's the way to go in my book. Well, this is probably, question is probably still within the inside the box. Uh, not everybody's gone outside the box yet, but how would you feel about rezoning uh, the state essentially to R4, essentially following the lines of Minneapolis and to some degree Oregon, 
and uh, and Washington State and look basically you know single family zoning is an interference with property rights it's an interfere with your right to build on your property uh, shouldn't we be and it's clearly a limitation on supply shouldn't we be getting rid of it we want to expand and at the same time I think we want as broad a buy-in as we can get um, we don't necessarily want to create political fights between those who are in a location who I think legitimately may have expected to say, hey, this is a community I really like and I'll bring my family here and we'll live here. Under the expectation it's single family, it would stay that way. Um, we can do, you know, we, we can do different things such as purchase up unused land, underutilized land, uh, purchase up an entire city block. Um, and turn that into multi-family residential living that may be very close to single-family neighborhoods, but I don't see why we have to necessarily completely do away with single-family neighborhoods. Cal uh, Southern California in particular was built on a model. Um, we're pretty, you know, we're, we're, we're six, seven decades into that model. It's it's going to be very difficult, I think, socially, culturally, politically, to tear that up. Um, I think we can build more and preserve single-family housing where people really value that. Uh, I don't think we need to throw that entirely out. I might be wrong on that, but, um, but I think there's probably enough outs to get, particularly with, with cities and areas, um, probably in partnership with the state, to say, hey, Here's four, here's four blocks that, that, that this an abandoned industrial area. Um, let's turn this into multifamily housing. Um, right now, CEQA makes that incredibly difficult. So I'm not quite ready to throw in the towel and say, hey, let's just ban all single family residential housing because I think culturally and socially it, would be, it could be very destructive to the state. Uh, so the other side of that, a lot of people are worried about displacement, particularly in low income neighborhoods, gentrification and building uh, in those areas, uh, risks throwing people out of their homes there. Uh, so do we, you know, we sort of face the same problems. Uh, and yet, you know, those type of neighborhoods do get built in and sort of wealthy white neighborhoods don't. Uh, isn't it simply a matter of fairness that, you know, that we should be upzoning the west side of San Francisco as well as uh, the poorer neighborhoods? You know, any, any economic analysis is gonna tell us that <laughs> the highest valued land is in a market is gonna go to the highest bidder. And from a societal point of view, that's good because take that example we just looked at in Palo Alto. Palo Alto is preserving four and a half acres of land for very low income housing at a cost of $70 million. Imagine what could be done if that land was sold for private. Um, I did a couple of calculations and it would be very, very easy to compensate those families at $100,000 per family and still have everybody come out way on top. So when we put low income housing or homeless housing into West Side Los Angeles locations or San Francisco locations, what we're essentially giving up is a lot of economic activity. Okay, so that's just a fact. We just, we have to take that into account when we make these plans. And we have to ask ourselves, how much is that foregone economic activity worth? Would the people, the lucky few, who will get to move into that five-story building that has 100 units in it, uh, that's in Santa Monica, the lucky few, how do we pick those lucky few? Um, what we know is that markets are about the best way we have to allocate society's scarce resources. Um, would those people be happier living in Santa Monica in implicitly incredibly expensive land or be compensated and living in an area that's much more affordable? What I would like to think is that they might say, 
like I think the Buena Vista residents would probably say is, yeah, I'd love to be relocated if it could be if if it would be if it would be worth my while. Um, so whether we do that or not, planners and those who are making who are approving developments and proposing developments, they need to take into account the costs of what could have been there otherwise. And I don't see that being part of very many conversations about development planning, but it really has to be. That is just the simple economics of what we're looking at. Well, that, that certainly makes sense, but that doesn't, then doesn't that come back to the idea that zoning artificially uh, restricts the market? So we don't know what the market would provide in those communities. Yes, it does. In those single family areas, it definitely does. Um, I'm all for expanding housing. If, you know, I'd like to see if we can get buy-in from those in the communities. And I suspect we can get buy-in for multi-residential housing um, if they see it being as an attractive addition to the, to the area. Um, I think we're probably gonna continue to just, so I think just as a realistic perspective, I think we're gonna keep hitting our heads against the wall if we keep trying to go to Santa Monica, Beverly Hills and say, hey, you know what? It's time for you to take your fair share of low income housing. Um, many people might want that to happen. It's gonna get, it's gonna get fought tooth and nail. So why not just say, let's build more of everything as we build more of everything, if we build more in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, that's not low income housing, um, the value and the prices of other housing throughout the area will naturally fall. Any expansion in supply is gonna put downward pressure on prices. So the idea of sort of engineering housing at different price points in very, very high value neighborhoods is going to be a difficult one, no matter what people's perspectives are. It implicitly gives up a lot of economic income. Um, it involves a lottery in terms of who's going to live there. So my view is, let's build. Let's build the multifamily stuff in those areas that existing residents might want. We might be able to build a lot in those areas. And as we build, and the more we build, the more downward pressure is on prices and of other parts of the general area. And that's good for everybody, including low-income people. Yeah, following up on that, questions are coming in to sort of follow up on that, but if the market allocates land to the highest bidder, shouldn't therefore all uh, land be allowed for multifamily use? Multifamily is worth more, has more value, has uh, a better economic use of land than single family detached homes are. Uh, so shouldn't we simply allow it and let the market uh, determine where people build. Yeah, so one, you know, so one option would be to go into certain single family areas and say, here's what I think your house is worth. Are you willing to move? And many people in particular single family areas might say, hey, I can't afford not to leave. And I think there's enough single family. Uh, I once looked at the demographic composition of those in single family homes. A lot are people without children or with grown children. So yeah, make them an offer. Um, the market, if, if, it's the, if, it, if it is that valuable for multifamily development, then we should be able to do a deal. Um, the old economist Ronald Coase would have, would, have, would have said, hey, you know, if a deal can be made, you know, then it can be made without, without putting a middleman between, between them. So yes, absolutely. Uh, if, if, it, if that can be done, yes. If there's value there, then yeah, buy people out. Um, I think, I, I don't know of any evidence that would suggest that can't be the case. All right, uh, on a, the political side of it, you've talked a lot about getting buy-in and I think that that's hugely important politically. I think uh, we've seen that there's difficulties uh, getting even simple reforms through. Uh, but it's also been pointed out that the left uh, opposes development and building more to some degree because of arguments that says essentially white people in single family homes shouldn't even have to allow a duplex down the block, but that poor people need to have to move across the state to a new neighborhood out in the Central Valley. Is that, you know, do you risk 
appeasing one side at the cost of alienating the, the other. Yeah, the, so from the perspective of recent developments, um, you know, now we, now we allow duplexes. Um, so ADUs have been permitted in the state. Um, uh, will that move the needle? Uh, and people are building ADUs. Um, some call them granny units, uh, you know, even in the most expensive areas. Um, um, you know, the issue about, hey, rich white families can afford to live here. Poor families, irrespective of race, can't. Um, there's no magic fix for that. Um, other than to say, <laughs> We have to be able to create much better paying jobs and or build a lot more. So imagine if we, so we take, let's say we take Los Angeles County. Um, it's a big place. Prices aren't as expensive, relatively speaking, say compared to San Francisco, uh, much easier to build. Um, imagine if we put in half a million additional housing units in, in Los Angeles County prices would fall substantially. And I don't mean putting in half a million low-income units, um, which are called affordable, but which uh, it's been estimated that, you know, a two-bedroom two bedroom affordable unit now costs about $600,000 to build in the state. Um, but if we just put in half a million units, new units in Los Angeles County, prices would plummet irrespective of what type of units they were. Um, could we do that without impinging onto um, single family zoning? Uh, I don't know if we could or not, but um, I'd like to think that that type of goal is what we should be thinking about, not necessarily constraining it to, hey, it's gotta be for people at 50% of the income level, um, but rather just building more of everything puts downward pressure on prices. And as if I take the question sort of to the logical limit of, hey, you know what, your, your, your solution is still going to keep California expensive and people are going to have to move. Well, what is the, um, do they, are they best off? Would somebody rather have the opportunity to buy an affordable home or live affordably in rental housing in a different part of the state or be in a subsidized unit near West Los Angeles where the school may not be very good, where other costs of living might be very high and where we might be able to provide a compensation for them to go to a different part of the state? Um, we haven't really asked, you know, we don't know what those people would say to us. They might well say, hey, yeah, living in Chico looks good. Cost of housing is less, school system is better, we'll have a better life. Um, that is not coming through enough and that will come through markets. And just to, just to clarify or confirm my views about this, um, yeah, I'd love to see more expansion of ministerial review and increase in multifamily housing. Um, what I worry about is forcing the forcing the the forcing it to be low income um, because that just drives up costs the way things are being done right now. Um, and I'd like to try to maximize buying as much as we can. It's never going to be hundred um, percent. And I'm sympathetic with people who make the claim that hey, you know what? there's this sprawling area of single family homes on big lots. If that's really valuable society, if it is, and we can build more there, then we should. And if it is that valuable, then those people recognize that and they'll be happy to sell their homes. All right, then. And I think, uh, thank you. We've run a little bit over here and I don't wanna take people's time any more than they've done. They've sat through two days of long discussions of this. We've covered a lot of ground from a lot of ideological perspectives and we really appreciate all our speakers. Uh, we appreciate everybody who's tuned in on this uh, through our various platforms. Uh, I do have a few thank yous I wanna make in particular. First of all, to 
Dave Hervey and Kelly Lester, my two assistants, they're my research associates and my, my general keeping me sane people. They, they, they basically helped run the, the entire show here. Uh, it would not be taking place without them and I wanna thank them very much. Also, McKinsey Johnson and the Cato Events team, uh, Linda Asu, the whole group of people who helped make Cato Events possible. Uh, wow, boy, did you really put something together here. And so thank you very much. Also to David Tassie, Peter Lowe, and the uh, IT team who actually got a, a Zoom conference to function, uh, uh, which I consider to be a minor miracle of the COVID age. Uh, so really appreciate that. Uh, and finally, I do want to thank David Steffi, whose generosity made uh, the entire project on poverty and inequality in California possible. Uh, we certainly uh, appreciate anybody who's willing to put their own uh, selves on the line like that. And so thank you to David and that. Uh, last few days have been interesting. I hope we've given you all something to think about. And the Cato Project on Poverty and Inequality in California will be continuing its work for the next couple of years. We'll be continuing to work on housing and homelessness. We'll be working on criminal justice reform, on regulatory reform, financial reform. Uh, we have a variety of issues we're going to be touching on, and we hope that you will all join with us. Uh, one last housekeeping measure. Um, we will be sending out a survey uh, to uh, anyone who registered through the official Cato site, if you've actually registered, you'll be getting a copy of a survey uh, asking for your opinion of uh, how we can make these uh, events better and what we did right and wrong. I hope you'll uh, respond. Thank you all, and I wish you uh, a safe and uh, happy time to come. Thank you. <laughs>